So it's great to be with you as we continue through the book of Galatians today. Um, So far, listen, as we've looked through the book of Galatians, we've seen that the the gospel of grace is powerful enough to save sinners. It's powerful enough to transform sinners. And and not only that, but it, it unites a people who probably have nothing in common apart from the fact that they have Christ and that they're in Christ and Christ is in them. And therefore, they're a family, a church, and you're unified around this message, right? It's a powerful message, and it's, it's a message that unites a church body. And our, our time today, what you're going to see within the text is that it's not enough to say you're united in Christ. The, the, the things that we believe must impact how we live. Right? Because you could say all the right things and live completely antithetical to that message. And, and that's hypocrisy. And you're going to see that right as, as we look at this uh, today. The gospel must work itself out in our every area of our lives. And, and when it doesn't, it's not enough to look at someone and say, hey, knock it off and start doing better. It's, it's not enough to do that. Because that in itself will not change behavior or or. Let's say it might change behavior temporarily, but unless the hearts change, nothing really changes, right? So we must constantly go back to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, and be reminded of this good news that saves, but also that transforms, okay? And so you're going to see that. And and so hypocrisy, I mentioned that word already. Um, I'm going to give you a lighthearted story about hypocrisy. It's very short. There's a 12-year-old boy. He's waiting for his first orthodontist appointment right and he's a bit nervous and if you've ever been to the dentist or an orthodontist you can see why it's a little bit terrifying right the smells the drill sound all of it and apparently he wanted to impress the dentist okay so the story goes on the on the patient questionnaire there was a space that was marked hobbies right and so him being a very witty young man at 12 he had written swimming and flossing which is hilarious, right? Because as if they're not going to know, right, as to whether you're flossing or not. And so that, that's a humorous story about hypocrisy, right? And, and by the way, in case you're thinking, yeah, I hate hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. At certain stages of our life, every one of us are, right? But, but listen, that's a funny story about hypocrisy, but spiritual hypocrisy is not humorous. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous because it distorts the gospel, and, and, and not only that, it disorients others, and it has potential to lead them astray, right? And you're going to see that as we look in our text. So look with me, um, Galatians chapter 2, Eli did a great job of reading the full chapter, but now I just want us to focus in from, from chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of that chapter, but the first chunk we're going to take, let's say, is chapter 2, 11 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If not, listen as I read. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? 
Whew. And if, you, if, you, if you're paying attention, that's a tense moment, right? Because, like, imagine the scene. Like, in this corner, right, we, what do we have? We have the Apostle Paul. And in this corner, we have the Apostle Peter. And, and we're about to have a royal rumble. Because Peter just called him out in front of everybody. I mean, imagine this moment. These are two gospel men. These are two saved men, two forgiven men, two redeemed men. They're called men. They're commissioned men. And, and what's happening? And yet here, the Apostle Paul is confronting, he's correcting the Apostle Peter to his face in front of everyone. So, so why? What's going on? That does not seem like good church culture. Whoa. What's going on here? Well, simply, simply put, Paul's confronting him because Peter was caving to the fear of man. And I'm going to say once again. Once again. Because if you know anything about Peter's life, I mean, he would deny Christ three times, right? And so fear of man. I'm not judging that. I, I probably have denied Christ for far less than what he was facing in that moment. So it's not like, oh, what a loser. But but when Peter first came to Antioch, which was a, a very mixed cultural setting, right? Big city center. He was gladly breaking bread with the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, the, the Gentile believers. He was, he was sitting down. He was enjoying meal. No doubt he probably had like some BLT with them. And, and he's loving life. But then it says there were certain men that came from Jerusalem that were from James. And when they came, he saw them. He stepped away from the table. Why? Well, essentially because he was afraid of what they might say. He, he was afraid of what they might think. And, and if you've been walking with the Lord long enough, I don't even have to ask whether you've ever felt that tinge of fear when maybe a certain religious person might show up. And it's like, oh, hurry up, turn off no, Pearl Jam, right? And, and turn on something that sounds like Pearl Jam, but it's Christian. <laughs> Which there is none of that. And, <laughs> and uh, that was a conversation that Kevin and I just had, and it's in my head, and so pray for him. I'll be you some <laughs> so, so what's the big deal? What's, what's the big deal? Why would he push away from the table? What's... Well, to start, here's part of the big deal. Jews were known for their strict dietary laws, right? And separation from Gentiles, okay? Why? Because essentially under the Old Covenant, God had established certain dietary laws and, and other commandments that were intended to keep Jews from mixing it up with Gentiles, right? Why? Because he did not want them to be corrupted by their idolatry and immorality. That was part of it, it was to understand that you're my people. And, and there was a, a part of goodness there, right? To share a meal then was actually to, it was more than just ingesting calories in your pile. It was much more than that. What it was is it, it, was, it was considered uh, accepting or approving of, of a person. To break bread with someone was a family moment. And so it's hard to change your mindset when that's what you've known your whole life. And with that in mind, you can see why Peter's eating with Gentiles would be offensive potentially to some Jews. And he might feel their gaze upon them, and he might want to push away. And so you can understand why he felt the pressure to back away from the table. But, but what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that Peter knew the gospel. Peter believed the gospel. Peter preached 
the gospel. But Peter's actions did not reflect that he understood the implications of the gospel. Therefore, Paul called him out on his hypocrisy. So what are you doing? Essentially, Peter's actions send the message to the Gentiles that are in Christ, by the way, that you're not truly fully cleansed. You're not really clean. You must do some Jewish things. You, must, you, you, need, to, you need to essentially clean yourself up by adding these things. That's what that motion did, and, and Paul would have none of it. He would have absolutely none of it. So, he was saying, essentially, you're, you're dirty, you're stained. It's not finished for you. There must be more that you have to do. And so he backed away. And so they must be avoided. Well, that was not true. And it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's the main part of that text I want you to see. Your actions are not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter had right belief, but he had wrong behavior. He had wrong application to the good news, right? And you might be thinking, how could this happen? But if you've lived long enough, you know how it can happen. It happens very easily because we all naturally drift towards like self-centeredness, self, let's say, righteousness or religion and away from the gospel. We do this and, and that's called legalism. Many times people throw that word around. They actually don't know what it means. They say, well, I don't read my Bible because that's legalistic. No, it's called a means of grace. You ought to read the word of God. But if you're reading the word of God so that God will love you more, that's legalism. That's legalism. Simply put, when you are looking to someone or something other than Christ or in addition to Christ, right, in order to be accepted before God, that is called legalism, okay? And this is why Paul says, that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. So, so he tells Peter this. The gospel message, by the way, is the good news that, of what God has done to save sinners through the perfect life of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Christ, the triumphant resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that he now sits at the right hand of God and that he mediates a relationship between a holy, righteous God and an imperfect people by grace alone. He keeps us connected. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. You got to get this. It's, it's not behavior modification. Right belief ought to inform right behavior. Okay, that's a fact. You're going to see that. And Paul's going to make sure that you get that all throughout the book of Galatians. I'm just trying not to jump ahead because he's going to get there. But he, he wants to make sure you understand the good news before you get on to what that ought to produce in your life as you walk by the Spirit. Because I know lots of people who are trying to do, let's, let's call it behavioral modification while they say they love Jesus, but they're really just trying to clean themselves up. And what they need to do is go back to the beginning and understand the gospel better. And that's what, that's what Paul is telling Peter. So, draw a hard line in the sand of what Christ has done. And understand, though, that this message does have huge implications for those who live by grace, through faith, in Christ, by the Spirit. And our job is to bring our lives into line with that truth of that good news. So in order to bring our feeling, our thinking, our behavior in line with that truth, we must know the gospel to the core of who we are. We might, it's not just a one-time thing. Come to Jesus. Here's the good news. It's, an, it's, it's why we sing it. That's why we preach it. That's why we pray it. That's why we, we go over it, over it, over it, and try to, to be reminded of this truth because we naturally want to drift from it. 
And this is why Paul Pete's, he, he points Peter to the truth of the gospel, not behavioral modification. That's not what he does. He, he doesn't simply say to Peter, hey, knock it off. That's not right. Quit it. Get back and, and eat some of that bacon. He, he doesn't say that. Instead, what does he do? Paul meticulously lays out the gospel. And make no mistake about it, justification, that word, lies at the heart of the good news of Jesus. It does. Martin Luther, commenting on Galatians 2.14, he says this. Listen to this quote. I love it. He said, I would have loved this dude. I would have like, wanted to hang out with him, and, uh, but it's too late now. In heaven. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Doctrine means teaching, right, right teaching. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. That's what he says we ought to do with the gospel. We ought to, listen, teach it well and beat it into their heads. So Luther's point, what's his point in saying that? This sounds a little violent. Is that those of us who have heard the good news of Jesus are prone to forget it and, 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 and quite honestly drift from it and go back to what we once knew. Therefore, he's saying, you've got to continually pound it into their heads and pray that the Spirit puts it into their heart so that it will affect everything about their lives. That's what he's saying. And so that's what Paul does. That's exactly where he goes. So as we move on to this next point, I want you to see this is not, okay, that scene's over. This is the continual conversation that he's having with Peter. All right? So, so look what he says in Galatians 2, 15 and 16. He says, listen, we ourselves are Jews by birth, absolutely, and not Gentile sinners, Yet we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order. Listen, why believe in Christ Jesus? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So so he just reminded him in one beautiful sentence, why? And so he brings them back to it. How can we know? Listen, how can you know when you come before God, when, when you die, when you start to push up daisies, when you stand before a holy, righteous God, that you will hear the verdict, not guilty? How can you know that? It's a, it's a good question. It's one you ought to think about. Where does your assurance come from? Right? How, how can you know that you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Many people then and now think it's through the law, although we don't say it like that. It's through behaving. It's through doing some good works. Yes, I mean, I'm a jerk most of the time, but every once in a while, I'll go and feed some homeless people, right? Because I'm sure that the big guy upstairs, he's, he's, he's really impressed with that, right? I'll give my coat away every once in a while. We, we make a big mistake when we conclude that it is the law or good behavior and Jesus plus some good works that God's pleased with that. He's not. Because listen, God requires absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. God is perfect. Heaven is, is a perfect place, but you and I are not perfect, and that's a problem. It's an absolute problem. As sinners, how can we be assured that a perfect holy God would accept us? Simple answer. Like, how can we be in the presence of a holy God as a sinful people? Really, we, we can't. Something drastic has to happen. 
something very drastic. So, so we are guilty. You and I, we're a guilty people by nature. Um, we deserve God's punishment. We deserve God's wrath. And this, that's a, he's perfect, we're not, that's a bad combo. It's a very bad combo. In, in light of our obvious guilt, if God were to declare us anything but guilty, he would cease to be just, he would cease to be good, he would cease to be God. You and I would never want, unless maybe you're on trial, a, a judge here in Greensburg to just every time someone who's guilty steps before them, he just bangs the gavel and says, innocent, enjoy your lunch at Sundog. You, you think, oh, I think I'd like that. I don't think you would like that. If you're on trial, you would like that. But what about if a criminal harmed your family in ways I don't even want to put in your mind and now you're wanting justice and this person goes before the judge and he just smiles and bangs the gavel and says, enjoy Sunday. Hey, make sure you tell Tommy I said hi when you get your iced cappuccino, frappuccino, latte, thingamajig, whatever you do when you go there. You would not like that. And yet, our world would prefer God be a judge like that. Or at least that's what they think. He's not. They'd prefer God simply overlook their offenses against him. But to do so would, by definition, render God being unholy, unjust, and unrighteous, which is impossible for him because he's perfect. And he's perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. So he can't do it. So clearly, listen, God does not know. He doesn't owe us anything. Well, that's not a popular sermon right you don't ever see people cue that one up it's not a popular teaching nowadays but if we're if we listen if you and I were to spend forever in the torments of hell forever as condemned sinners we would simply have gotten what we deserve that is what we deserve that's what we deserve so can you see the dilemma that we're in can you see so the question is what can we do well some people think they have an answer to that among non-religious types, right, the general consensus among the enlightened folks is that we're kind of just perfect the way we are, right? And gosh darn it, people like me, right? And, and so such people will blame their behavior on the fact that God made them this way or life circumstances have put them in this position. And therefore, you're basically good people, but I'm kind of a victim because you don't understand. So that's one way. So of course he'll accept me. Other Non-religious folks assume that, that God is, is not looking for perfect people, but he's looking for some good folks, right? Those who are, they're nice, right? They'll buy you ice cream if they have a couple extra bucks. And they're trying their best to behave and to do these things. And they assume that based on their own good standard, that, that you know, God's just looking for some good people. And so they're part of that gang. And so, of course, they'll be accepted when they stand before him. They're good enough for God. Uh, among religious types, though, there's a general consensus is among various religions, by the way, is that if we do enough right things that when we stand before God, he's obligated to accept us because our good outweighs our bad. And of course, he'll declare us righteous or we'll have to do something else, but he'll do it. And for this reason, by the way, religious folks are very passionate. They're very devoted. They're focused very intently on what they do and doing everything right and judging everyone who doesn't do it exactly the way they do it and saying, you guys aren't behaving the way we think you should. And so every time you're around them, you feel like a total loser. 
This type of living, by the way, leads to either pride or despair, because if you're one of the ones who do it right, you're going to feel really great about yourself. If you're the ones who's around that person who's always doing it right, and you're like, I'm blowing this thing, you're always going to feel like an utter failure. This is why the gospel brings peace and humility, because it's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about what Christ has done for you. And so this is not the answer, right? That, the type, that type of religious living, they're always trying to do it right, but you can't define what it is. It's whatever they say it is. And so that, that's misery. So what we see in this glorious text is that there is no line of people standing before God in the day of judgment having him accept their resume based on their performance, which is good news. What's, what's ultra clear is that your works can, they can damn you, but they can never save you. You've you got to hear this. Because many times we can say we believe that, but we can live completely opposite of that belief. What do you need? Well, you need to be reminded of the gospel. You need it pounded into your head. But you must understand the bad news, or you will never rejoice in the fact that Christ died to save sinners. You'll never be blown away by that. You'll never be amazed by that news. Of course he would die for me. I'm awesome. That's what, I mean, no one says that, but people think that when they're just kind of like, yeah, of course he would. You don't even understand the situation that you and I were in before Christ saved us, right? Thankfully, though, God is merciful. We, I love this one of the, I mean, I love all the songs we just sung, but the one in particular is that his mercy is more. If you will just... As you're singing, think about the words you're singing and understand it's a proclamation and a prayer. You'll be so blessed in a way that you might not be if you just look at words and sing. And so he is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. You ought to spend the rest of the day thinking about all the ways he, he had every right to crush you and squash you like a bug. But because he's kind, because he's gracious, he's slow to anger. He withheld. He withheld. As I was a young boy, shoveling ice cream into my face, not giving a rip about what my neighbors were saying, he was patient. He was kind. He's loving. He's faithful. And he's willing to forgive. It, it, it's his heart. That's what he wants to do. What naturally flows from him is love. And, and so that solves part of the equation, right? It really does. However, there's still the question of how can a good God justify us and still remain just? That is a question that you ought to try to figure out. And I'm hopeful that the Spirit would, would help you understand in a depth that you don't understand currently. Because we don't always think about that side, right? The answer to the question on that, that question is the teaching of what's called justification by faith alone, right? To be justified is to be declared righteous. That's what it means in the sight of God. To, to be justified is the opposite of being condemned. Right? So before faith in Christ, you are condemned. There's nothing you can do. You are under the right wrath of God. In Christ, by faith, you, if you put your faith in Christ, are justified. You are declared righteous. It's finished. It's done in that moment. Justification means that in Christ, though, we are actually sinners. We are not under condemnation. We are under grace. We are under his love. The word justify is so important to the gospel that Paul uses it eight times in the book of Galatians alone. 
And you're going to see it. You should underline it. You should note it every time he says it, right? The truth that guilty sinners can be declared righteous before a holy, righteous God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of the person and work and what Christ has done in our place is absolutely central to the gospel message. And see, you, you have to know it. Beyond just a mantra of saying it. Because tons of people will say it. But they live completely as though they don't believe it. And that was what was happening with Peter. This means there's absolutely nothing you and I can do to contribute to our justification. When Jesus said it's finished on the cross, he was declaring us justified. In that moment when we put our faith in him. Meaning all the work that needed to be done was finished on, in, in him. Now, what do you do? You receive that work. You receive that gift. You receive it by faith. That's exactly what he's saying in this moment. So, so what does that mean? Well, not only did Jesus take away your, your past sins, but it means he, he's taking away your present sins and the sins you've not yet committed. Think about that. The ones you're not even thinking about were paid for in Christ in that moment. Past present, future sins paid for on the cross. But he also, he not only forgives, but he gives us his perfect righteousness. He gives it as a gift to be received by faith. So therefore, now listen, justification is only possible, pay attention, through works. And, and someone ought to be like, whoa, Wait a minute, I see one guy shaking his head. Now listen very carefully before you leave. Whose works is the question? Huh. Yeah, the work of Christ in our place for our sins on the cross. Oh, we needed works. We just couldn't do them. We could never do them. Christ did them. His, his perfect life, his perfect death, his triumphant resurrection. We need works. We just can't do them. Christ did them. He did them. And when he did them, he did it all. He did everything. This is exactly what Paul is saying when he says, so we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Oh man, if I could teach you one thing, every time you see the words in Christ, don't just think it's the word in and another word. It's faith in everything He's done. I'm trusting in Him. I'm believing upon Him. If, if it's meant to be and it's up to me, I'll never get to heaven, but Christ has done it all. Therefore, I throw myself upon Him, upon His mercy, upon His work, upon His grace. He did it all. So trust Him, enjoy Him, worship Him, adore Him, live for Him, but don't think your living for Him is paying anything back because He doesn't do debtor's forgiveness. Just receive it with joy. So once again, my homie Martin Luther says in regards to this subject, he would not mind if I said that, by the way. <laughs> if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. I know some of you, because I know mostly all of you, I know some of you more, you don't really believe that God's not angry with you. You think he's pleased with you sometimes, but there's this admixture of, 
not really happy with me. He tolerates me. And that's, what, that's exactly what Martin Luther felt like all the time. Just a turd in a punch bowl. Such a loser. That's what he always felt like. And this is why he says, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head and shout for joy. And I believe that expresses how someone who's truly justified and understands the truth of that will respond and you'll know it by their life. And so what you need if, if you're weary, if you're happy or if you're anything in between is to know that God is pleased with you by faith in Christ alone. He's pleased with you. He doesn't tolerate you. He actually enjoys you. And, and the truth of that will affect how you live. It, or it should. And so we're going to keep pounding in your head if you keep coming. So that's exactly where Paul goes next. He says, okay, so that's the truth of justification by faith alone. What does that mean for my life? Look at 17 through 21. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? So someone, he's, someone's posing that question. He's like, oh, so if he justifies sinners, we just continue to do whatever. Then does that mean that, that, that God's unjust? That's really what's happening here. Listen to what he says. For if I rebuild what I tore down, the law and me trying to prove myself, I prove myself actually to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. Why? Listen, so that I might live to God. You see what he's saying? It's a tricky text, by the way. He says, I, now, this is like the mantra text. Some of you might even have it tattooed if you're cool with that, and, right? But, but many people have it plastered on a fridge or something. It's a good text to put on a fridge, by the way, if you would like to do that kind of thing. But listen to the words of what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We're, we're going to hammer that in a minute. But this whole section, by the way, is, is how to live in light of the truth of the good news that Jesus justifies sinners. Right? It's really the whole section. Paul died to the law. If you're in Christ, you died to the law. Why? So that you can now live for God. And man, I've been praying that we'd get this. I mean, seriously, all week. I've been praying I'd get this more. Okay? So, so what Paul's essentially saying in this moment is that before he came to faith, before he put his trust in Jesus, while he was still trying to save himself through keeping the law, Paul never actually ever lived for God. That's what he's saying. That's amazing. That's an amazing statement. What does he mean by that? Because if we read his account, what he's saying is him being moral and upright and doing all these things was essentially for himself, never for God. Do you get what I mean by that, right? He's, He's saying, he was essentially saying he was living to get love, to get righteousness. He was living to get a reward from God, but he himself was never living for God. It was always motivated out of getting something for himself. So religion's about, about you. That's what religion's about. That's what law produces. It produces very self-focused people. The law, by the way, is a good gift from God. So just to be very clear. 
Um, it shows us what God commands. It, 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 what God commands in the way of right living, right? But nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that the law possesses the power to enable us to do what it says. Nowhere. You'll never find it. It's not there. You, you could say it this way. The law guides us, right? But, but, it, but it doesn't give. It's rigid. It, it, it doesn't empower you to do the thing it says to do. It, it shows us what godliness is, but it can't make us godly. It just shows us we're not. Over and over. Every time I see a list, I'm not measuring up. And so it shows us our need. John Bunyan... Um, he, he, he wrote a, a really cool poem that articulates this beautifully. Listen to this poem. He sa- it says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You get it? <laughs> That's good. That's just good stuff. So essentially, there's two ways to live the Christian life. That's what's being laid out here. You can either live it trying to measure up. You can exhaust yourself attempting to obtain the love of God. Or you can live it resting in the fact that you are loved in Christ and trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. You can strive, right, for a new identity as a son or daughter of the living God, never really sure if he loves you, or you can rest with full assurance by faith that Christ is in you, that you are in Christ, and therefore you have a place in the family because you did nothing to obtain that place. He came and got you. He rescued you. He saved you. He did it all. He did it all. And now what do you do? You trust that. You trust that. And and so... Many of you guys know I was greatly impacted by a book called Gentle and Lowly when I was on vacation. And, and I want to I read just a little section of it. And it's a, it's, it's a great illustration of what, what I think the, the heart of this passage is. So will you listen as I read it? Um, it says this, picture a 12-year-old boy growing up in a healthy, loving family. Okay? As he matures, though no fault of his parents, he finds himself trying to figure out how to really assure himself a place in the family. One week, he tries to create a new birth certificate for himself. The next week, he determines to spend all his extra time scrubbing the kitchen. The following week, he determines to secure my place um, by imitating his dad. And one day, his parents question his strange behavior. I'm just doing, he says, all that I can to secure my place in my family, guys. How would the father respond? Calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You are our son, period. You don't do anyone, um, you don't do anything at the start to get into the family, and you cannot do anything now to get yourself out of this family. Live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. Sinner, my son. Some of you need to believe that to the heart and the core of who you are because you're always trying to get God to love you. And you just need to know he does. How do I know? I look to the cross. So, so when we obey because we think God will love us more, essentially we're acting like the 12-year-old boy. Do you get it? Do you get what's being said? See, the, the gospel 
confronts us by reminding us that, that God's approval does not depend on keeping the law, but by trusting in Christ who kept the law perfectly in our place. And therefore, we're justified. The gospel reminds us that, that God's love for us th- does not get bigger. His heart doesn't enlarge more when we're behaving or when we're obeying. Or, or it doesn't get smaller when we're disobedient. Yes, we grieve his heart when we sin. Don't make any mistake about that because that's what a good father is. But his mercy and his grace actually abounds towards you. Because you're his son. Because you're his daughter. Right? This truth, when, when understood and believed, will make us want to obey Jesus more, not less. This is why it's a belief problem, never a behavior problem. Behavior just proves that you need to understand and believe more. And this is why we always go back to the gospel. And we don't move on from it to, now i got to start cleaning myself up. And, and so, in order to do that, we must understand and believe. We need the help of the Spirit which is exactly where Paul's going to go next week, right? But before we finish, and we're almost done, I want to look at verse 20 with you in a little bit more detail. Notice he says, I have been crucified with Christ. See it? It's right there. That ought to sound strange to you. When? When when were you crucified with Christ? Do you remember getting nailed to a cross? Paul, I mean, you're alive. When did this happen? What he's saying is God treats us exactly as if we died on the cross when Jesus died on the cross and paid for every last one of our sins in that moment. We owe nothing. We are, let's say, we have, Christ has paid it in full. Now, now get this. That's a radical statement. I have been crucified with Christ. Why it's radical is because the wages of sin is what? Death. That's exactly right. So what are we owed? Wages is something you're owed, right? You're owed death. So when, when you put your faith in Christ, essentially what happened is you were nailed to the cross with Christ in that moment. Therefore, you are dead. This is why God's not going to be angry with you because you're dead. You know, your sins have been paid for in that moment. There is no double jeopardy with the gospel. You're dead. You were nailed to the cross. I have been crucified. Okay. It's no longer I who live. Well, hold on. Well, I'm, I'm alive. What the heck is going on here? But Christ who now lives in me. Do you see that? See, so when God looks at the redeemed sinner, he sees Christ's perfection. He sees his perfect life. Right? In a sense, the eye of Christianity is gone. It's no longer I who live. We're made a new person in Christ. We're in Christ. He's in us. We have a completely new identity. And boy, is Paul going to work hard to make sure you understand that that identity is not just a forgiven sinner, but is a beloved son or daughter. And he's going to work hard to make sure you understand that because he, I, that is the beauty of justification. Because if you just understand it as a legal thing and not a, he came to adopt you, to bring you into the family, to love you, to, to lavish his love upon you, then you will always just have this distant, cold understanding of a deity and a judge. But no, he's a loving father who does everything to bring you into his family. And so he says, And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh man, I wish we'd... God, help us to get this. 
the gospel man or woman lives for and like the one who died his death and gave him his perfection. The more we understand of that amazing love, that amazing truth, the more in line we will live our lives in step with the gospel. Why do you obey? Is it to get love or is it because you understand he loves me in amazing ways? How do I know? Every time I look to the cross. Every time I look to the cross. He loves you. He gave himself for you. Freely, gladly, Jesus laid down his life for the joy that was set before him to save sinners. He loved us in our mess. And so he loved us. He'll love us in our mess now. If, if Christ died for you while you were a, a hell-bent, ungodly sinner, how much more would he not love you now that you're his chosen one? Of course he would. So get this, nothing can unjustify you. You, you can't unjustify yourself any more than you can un, make yourself unborn again. You cannot do it. Why? Because you, my friend, were crucified. And now you're in Christ. And nothing can take you out of being in Christ. Not even, not even you. Not even you. Well, you can say, I don't believe. No, if you're his, he will continue to give you the grace to believe because the God who began the good work is faithful to bring it to completion. When you are unfaithful, he still remains faithful to his word. Now, there are people who might say, well, I don't believe it. And maybe they never did because that's exactly what the Apostle John would say. If they go out from among us, they never were of us. But if you are of us, you cannot unjustify yourself no matter how hard you try. Why? Because it's finished. It's done. It's declared. You are declared righteous. You're forgiven. You're loved. Do you believe that? That's the question. Because if you are united in Christ, you are as good as already being in heaven. And by the way, heaven, before you think, oh, that's great. I get to see puppies and rainbows and care bears and eventually become a fat little cherub and sit on a cloud and strum a harp. He heaven is, is much less a place. It, it, it really is. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. Heaven comes down because God in Christ comes to live with his people and dwell with his people in New Jerusalem. And so why are you excited for heaven ought to be a question you think about. And my hope, my hope is that it's because I get to spend eternity with the God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why. I'm excited for heaven because I get him. And he wipes every tear from my eye. There is no more sorrow. <laughs> There's wine flowing from the mountaintops, and it's all free. And we feast, and we enjoy, and we love God, and we love one another. And sin has been eradicated, smashed out, gone, and put where it belongs. And that's with the devil and his fallen angels. And God's people will live forevermore in his presence. Fully happy. All your broken emotions. Not that way anymore. Perfect. 
all your broken feelings of inadequacies and wondering if God loves me, gone in an instant. All your pain, your sorrow, your suffering, gone in an instant. And forever you have joy. You have life. You have love. And this is why we don't waste our lives doing trivial things. It's why we don't try to make our home here. It's why we understand we're pilgrims that are passing through. It's, it's why we, we gladly sell homes. It's gladly give away the things we need to give away. It's why we go wherever God calls us to go to bring the message of peace and reconciliation to a people who are lost because this is not our best life now. Our best life is yet to come. And so we go and we share good news and we live out the truth of that in the way that we live, the way that we do, because we are perfectly in the good grip of a sovereign, loving God. Amen? Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you um, for your grace. I thank you that you love to seek and save sinners. I love that you love to justify sinners. I love that it's finished. And when you said it's finished, it truly is. I love that there's nothing more that we have to do or could do. We just continue by grace to trust you. And so, Father, give us more faith. Give us a deeper and better understanding of what you've done. Pour the love of Christ into our hearts more deeply, more fully. Help us to understand the depth and the width. All of what you have accomplished for us because as we understand the love of Christ, the more we will love you, the more we will love one another. And the more we will understand we don't need to love ourselves or get love from other people because we have been infinitely and are infinitely loved in you. Therefore, we can love people not to get anything, but simply just to love. Create that heart in us. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.